All righty. Hello, listener, watcher, wherever you are. Um, I don't normally do these sort of preambles anymore, um, but I found it warranted given what's happened to this week's guest since our interview. Um, everything I'm about to say is alleged and is my personal opinion. Me, Jordan Michaelides, it's not from Neural, it's not from CoinJart, it's not from anyone else but my own opinion. Um, the court of public opinion is obviously no way for someone to be judged, particularly someone who's had such an impact on the industry. But I cannot willingly proceed to publish this episode without talking about what has happened in the last week. Um, for context, we recorded this episode with Alex probably two to three weeks ago. So before all of this drama. Um, Alex Saunders, our guest, has been for years the guy that everyone trusted and looked to in the industry. He's always maintained a logical and balanced view of projects in this digital asset space. I think it's allowed him to become sort of the individual that we all look to. And through that, he's built an amazing media brand like Nuggets News. He's verified on Twitter. He's created a fundamental analysis community and business in Collective Shift with his co-founder, Ben. Um, but all that really changed after what's come out since this heated debate with Alex and Hex coin founder, Richard Hart. That would have happened about a week ago on a Sunday. I think it might have been around the 19th of July. Um, I'll let people find the clip in their own time, but I'm going to be honest, it was it was very uncomfortable to watch and the shit-slinging that proceeded on Twitter basically opened up a side of Alex we'd never seen before at all. Um, Richard had published snapshots of a conversation that showed Alex asking to borrow money, which brought further people into the conversation on Twitter. Now, initially, myself and someone else in the business um, were, we, we honestly thought it was a lie, like fabricated, because knowing Richard from Hex, he's a bit of a, um, a scam artist, in my opinion. Now, my understanding of what's happened or what's been uncovered is, is this, essentially. Alex's, I guess, disposition started to change probably October, November of 2020 across all of his content. He'd started reaching out to people in his community asking for loans of Bitcoin, Ethereum, and other digital assets. And the explanation that was given was that often he was trading the market or market movements and needed to borrow, which is a common activity for high net wealth individuals. It's nothing suspect. Um, institutions do it as well. It's known as prime uh, borrowing or lending, where essentially you borrow in a short time frame uh, coins, stocks, whatever it may be to fulfill a position that you don't actually have at the moment. The reason you do that is because some of your assets are tied up. Um, you obviously pay a interest rate on top of that, uh, a decent one that makes it worthwhile for the risk involved for the individual. Now, the mistake here that these individuals made is that they trusted Alex and they didn't have an agreement with him. Um, and what has happened is, is this sort of correlates with transactions that we that we know were sent from his wallet, his known wallets directly to FTX. For those who don't know, FTX is sort of like a, a leveraged or margin, margin trading platform for the crypto space. Um, so far, I've seen one individual on Twitter known as um, at DeFi underscore Ted who's uncovered probably $4.5 million in transactions. You know, like granted, some of those will be Alex's own, own funds, but it's 
a lot of money. And in what seems like a, a doubling down, Alex launched this sort of stablecoin project that uh, it seems like he was using to gather funds for trading, saying that he secured millions of dollars from others when approaching unwitting investors from the collective shift community. So people, again, who trusted Alex. Um, I know he approached me on this project right after doing our podcast. And I'm going to be honest, I was immediately suspect based on the lack of professional documentation he'd sent me. It was basically just a word doc with dot points around his thoughts and feelings. The sentences weren't concise. It was sort of him writing like he was talking on a live stream or something like that. And when I look at some of the conversations with other people, there are people who are, you know, he would approach them and say, hey, do you want to invest in this? And they would say, okay, where's the agreement? And every time he would have an answer for why there's no sort of agreement or official contracts with this. So um, like that does not look good at all for him. Um, I'm going to be honest, it looks really, really bad. Um, I know he used other former guests of the podcast, including Jamie Skeller, um, episode 68, as a way of showing sort of authority in his project by saying that Jamie was on board. I've spoken to Jamie directly. He had no idea about this. He's approached Alex and he's got no, Alex has not responded. Um, there is word that he is speaking and has lawyered up. Um, apparently, people who gave him cash have been receiving responses from someone claiming to be his lawyer saying that they're only eligible for a return of funds if they sign a non-defamation clause and say nothing further about it. I don't know if that's real. Um, I'll give him the benefit of the doubt. I haven't seen anything around conversations. It's just hearsay. Um, I've asked Alex repeatedly over WhatsApp, but he's just come back with broad statements, not addressing anything. I think he really needs to address this publicly and immediately. Today is Monday, the 26th of July. Um, the fact that he hasn't addressed it after a week is deeply concerning. Um, yeah, to say I'm sad is an understatement and a lot of his mood in this conversation now makes a lot of sense in hindsight. Um, my producer Jacob has said the same thing. He, he was very um, different to what I'm used to. He was very unusual when we were talking about frauds and scams. Um, that could just be me being biased, but I don't know. Something just seemed off in this conversation. Uh, I have seen this happen personally in the FX space. It's horrifying to see essentially what gambling can do to you as an individual by taking someone else's money, taking your own money and just betting it essentially on black on big trades that will supposedly get you back in the green or even in the black after losing money. It's an addiction. Um, another example I saw back in the FX game was uh, a gentleman who was given power of attorney over his mother-in-law's savings, essentially her super. It was $200,000 and he blew it all away on FX trading and I had to deliver his uh, wife um, or a strange wife the news that all of her mother's money was essentially gone. Um, it's sad. It's just really, really sad. And um, it's not just sad for like people who've been scammed out of what seems to be seven or eight-figure sums, but for like Alex himself. He clearly has a problem and I just hope that he gets help. Um, I hope this episode will act as a lesson on the faults of the human condition in trading within markets. For Even for someone as, as so highly trusted and so high up in the industry as Alex, 
I will still give Alex the benefit of the doubt as he's not responded publicly, but I'm going to be honest, the evidence is significantly against him. Even though, though it's alleged and people say it could be fabricated, I just don't see how a reasonable person could deem this as such. Um, and there's too many people in the industry who have come to me directly and say that there's just no way, like this is this has happened and they're just shocked. Uh, even his co-founder Ben made a statement the other day and he seems to be just as shocked as we all are. So I guess I'd say if anyone who's subscribed to Collective Shift and you're annoyed, um, don't take it out on that, that team. I know Alex is really no longer part of it, but what they offer is a good product. And I don't think people should be without a job because some one person made a bad decision. Um, yeah, if you're watching, Alex, take care of yourself. If you're listening, I hope you take care of yourself. But for everyone else, um, this is a very, very interesting lesson and a sad one at that. Hi, my name is Alex Saunders and this is Uncommon. Uncommon is a production by Neural, an agency that helps both brands and talent tell their story. To learn more, just visit neural.com. That's N-E-U-R-A-L-L-E.com. My guest this week, Alex Saunders, CEO and founder of Nuggets News. How are things down on the East Coast, has he? Um. I don't tell people where I am, but Tassie's small enough. Yeah. So I'm just I'm on the island somewhere. You're on the island. Yeah. Yeah. I it's been a long time. There's something about people in Tassie at the moment with how good you've had it in terms of COVID, because like my my wife's, my now wife's family, none of them came to our wedding in April because they're that paranoid about COVID. What's the vibe oh. like down there? Well, congrats on the, the wedding. Um, you. Yeah, you know, I, I thought you were about to say that they've got a little bit of a spring in their step. They're a little bit arrogant. Um, oh, there's definitely being, that. There's definitely that. Yeah. Mainlanders yeah. speak down about, you know, Tasmanians over the years. And look, we haven't had to wear a mask so far or yeah. had lockdowns or anything. So we've got it good. Property's going up 21% a year. Mm-hmm. Everyone wants to live here all of a sudden. So I think they're probably a little bit paranoid because we've had it so good. And you just don't want to go to the mainland and then get stuck in like a quarantine or a lockdown and not be able to come back to Tassie. Like I think that's what some people were worried about. Yeah, Um, Yeah, It sounds a little bit paranoid, but the reality is like look how quickly some of these lockdowns have happened again. Like I was meant to go over to uh, Perth, WA in a couple of weeks and it's just it's such a big risk that something could happen and, you know, or you get sick yourself or whatever. So, yeah, stay in Tassie. So the risk is basically that you would have to come back home and quarantine before being able to get back actually home. Yeah, yeah, something like that. Or you just never know if the you know Western Australia get funny and close the borders to Adelaide or Melbourne, and you know, you've got to do those two hop flights back, or you know you just you just never know. So, have you had much time to travel around or to much else outside of Tassie this year? No, no. So I mean, normally I was. Oh, I think 2018 we did 100 flights or something like ridiculous, Jesus. And, and it hasn't been. I don't think I've done a single one in a year now. Yeah. Okay. 2018, 100 flights. What were you doing there? Was that like conferences and the like? Uh, we did a national tour, so we went to oh, what six capital cities. Um, a lot, a lot of time it was you know connecting flights. Then I was going to Melbourne or Sydney most weeks for business meetings, often there and back in the same day. Yeah, yeah, I've racked up the frequent flyer miles. 
Were you, are you a virgin or Qantas guy? Or um, Jetstar? Virgin, virgin guy. Um, it's a funny story, right? So when we just started, we we're a bit of a rabble at Nuggets News. None <laughs> of us had run a business before. <laughs> and the young guy who I work with got us all those um, premium memberships for Virgin. And then he booked our national tour and it was all through Jetstar. <laughs> <laughs> oh, shit. That's so funny. Mm. That's so funny. Yeah, we've got something like a million frequent fly points with Qantas after like all those cards and all this travel and stuff. But like we haven't been able to use it obviously for nearly two years because of I COVID. Always, I always worry. Like, you know, when we're in the depths of the... um you know, COVID and businesses were going under and so many people have so many like points and then they're like worried about whether Qantas is going to go under or not. Yeah, yeah. Fuck that. Actually, that would have been a good thing to buy on like marketplace, you know, uh, mm. buying people's frequent flyer points if cash was tight at that point in time. She's only afraid of things like that. Yeah. <laughs> so, okay, Tazzy, you grew up there. What's sort of, what's your earliest inception memory? What do you remember first about life? So we had a different house when we were really, really young. I remember that quite well. Like, oh, just playing footy and cricket with my dad. Um, earliest, earliest memories. Probably the ones where you like, you know, you hurt yourself, like you fall off a brick wall, you split your lip open and just those things that stand out at the time. Yeah. Um, no, nothing specific. Yeah. For me, it was, it, it's the same, getting hurt or... I feel like my earliest memory was getting smacked for something. Like it's, it's a really distinct memory because I'd been playing like with Play-Doh at kindergarten or like creche or whatever it was. And um, I came home and there was like bits of woods and wood and my parents had had cement done on the side of the house and I went up to the cement and put it in like Play-Doh. So there's all these like wood shape, stent, like as if I was playing with Play-Doh and I just remember getting a smack for that. That's a very distinct memory for me. Growing up, was there particular lessons that you learnt that you have still today from either your parents? And it might be something directly or indirectly. Look, we were pretty well off, but my parents came from, you know, middle class, lower middle class, and then our grandparents, you know, they came from, you know, poor. Like a lot of people back then, you know, the, after the war and everything, they had very little. Uh, and I had all my grandparents up until Pa died last year. So they're all in their mid to late 80s. So I was really lucky. Wow. I probably learned a lot from my grandparents, particularly Pa, about life and values and all that. And there's such a disconnect these days from um, just people's values. You know, you try to explain to your 80-year-old Pa what, what TikTok is and why kids mm-hmm. are doing this, that or the other these days. It's just like literally can't understand it at all. Mm. Um, but particularly money, like we used to talk a lot about work and what it was like back in the old days. And we, we're actually going to do an episode about all this, um, but then my partner got really sick and he passed away. But we had all the papers from when they built their house and things like that. And I think it was maybe oh, less than $10,000 to build that house, yeah. build their big family home. And they had the receipts for you know, the cost of this, that and the other. And you think about that compared to these days, it was awesome just to look at all that and you think about, well, what's actual inflation compared to what they say it is from back then. Um, no, it's just amazing. I love having those chats. That's actually really interesting that you mentioned that. So I think we've got some pretty good like documentation from my dad's side of the family. You know, his family, we're definitely more close with my mum's family because my mum's one of 10. So it's like the spread of information is very vast. 
Mm. So getting documents and things like that was really hard. So we've got a lot of around my grandma, my grandpa, but Lauren's side of the family, my wife's side of the family, because she's an only child, like they've got everything. And it's really fascinating to look back a lot of this stuff. Like her grandmother was, um, was German, like grew up in Germany during the war. So it was like part of Hitler youth. You know, we've still got the old documentation of like her school, um, you know, like your report card and like mm. the way they used to stand this stuff with these big swastika eagles and um, like all it's, this crazy stuff. That Yeah, so so my wife, um, her grandparents are Austrian and similar thing. Like they really? had all that, all that stuff as well. Yeah. yeah. So it's in like this one little box, this tin box, like everything to do with her life back in Germany. Um, like family photos and then you get random things like those report cards. But it's funny you mentioned about your grandparents and those receipts because her grandparents, they obviously came here and then eventually when they finally settled in, I was Dramana, sort of Mornington Peninsula area, they bought a flat pack house. So you could buy houses as like a sort of, you get your everything just basically put together in like a flat pack box and then yeah. you put it up together yourself. So they did it with their son, uh, Lauren's father. And yeah, it was like $20,000. And now that house, like they're looking at selling it. It's probably like valued at 1.8 mil, something like that. <laughs> I, want, oh, I was going to say, is it still standing? The actual flat yeah, pack no, house? So it's still standing. They did some renovations. Um, some things have gone, but most of the structures stayed. That's um, amazing. Yeah, it's really funny. It's really, really funny. Um, that's inflation for you, right? It is 7% a year, reported at 2%. Yeah. Okay, so early studies, we know about the uh, the life as a pharmacist. Um, you know, you're doing that essentially full-time until Nuggets News came along. We'll get into that early crypto foundation later, but I've always wondered why the name Nuggets I think I've only ever said or told the story like once on another podcast and maybe not even on Nuggets News. Uh, so some people think like, you know, gold gold nugget. Other people think it's like McDonald's story. Other people think it's something to do with crap. But um, no, so I was like really short. I was a late bloomer at high school because I'm six foot one now. Yeah. Um, but no, I was really, really short up until like grade 10 or 11. So I was short and stocky. So I was a little okay. nuggety because I was, you know, playing football and cricket with the older kids, um, yeah, it was a little nugget and it just stuck. And that's it. Yeah. And that, so was that like your nickname in those early years? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Still is now. Like even school teachers called me that. Like everyone called me that basically, yeah. Okay. And that's how Nuggets News came about. Yeah. Well, that, at least the name came about rather. The, yeah. the way that the, the, the business and the content came about. So you've spoken about the story many times on many interviews. Basically, like myself, GFC happened, you lost money. You you then that sort of I think that either takes you one of two ways. You either do a deep dive and find out why, why did I lose this money? Or you give up completely on this space and just flog it off and say, no, nah, this isn't for me. I'm no good at it. So like myself, you probably did the deep dive. It seems like you were looking at markets, options, derivatives. That idea of Bitcoin was definitely floating in that periphery. I remember discovering Bitcoin or just the idea of it in like 20, well, it must have been 2013. I would have been like at uni and someone was speaking about it in a finance class, like because we're watching a lecture and it's like 
hey, have you heard about this Bitcoin thing? I'm like, nah. So I jump on Zero Hedge and have a read of it. And that's how I found out about it. A couple of years later, then I finally like look into it properly. So you probably had a similar thing. It was just sort of in the ether, so to speak. I know by the 2017 crypto bubble, you were in deep making content. And if we look at the last six months, you've been lent on as sort of the guy from Rao Paul, Chris Jard, George Gaiman, Martin North when it comes to crypto. So I, I guess I'm curious now in hindsight, when you look back at that four-year period from 2017, what were sort of the lowest moments during that winter where you thought about giving it away? As a business, we probably got to that point where we were bleeding. I mean, most crypto groups, right? Most pay groups lost 90%, if not all of their paying members in crypto winter. We were quite lucky where we were doing a lot of research and that, and we still had some projects that were even making people money in the worst of it. And so we had a loyal following. We probably retained 90% uh, of our paying members. But even that, we were still not getting any new customers. And we could see how long till we're going to run out of runway. Uh, and some of the other guys I had working at the time weren't as diehard crypto believers. They were very much of the opinion that like, you know, this is going to die. And one of them um, left. Uh, and so then there was just two of us. The other guy, again, probably just didn't have the understanding of crypto that I did. So I didn't have the belief. Uh, I mean, I, I always thought it was going to come back just to what degree and how long that was going to take. And could you run a business around it? I wasn't sure. Um, but it's more about when you've been talking, hey, Bitcoin is going to be fine, Ethereum is going to be fine. Um, you know, I still like these projects, even though they're down 90%. Yeah. Um, and just by the weight of numbers, the majority of people come in when prices have gone up the most and there's the most hype. And no matter how many times you say now's not a good time to buy, you know, it's actually time to take profits. Most people bought near the top. And so they're down 90% if they held. Um, yeah, so that's really, really painful when you're seeing those people hurting and yeah, you get some really nasty messages and all that stuff as well. That's fine. I don't, I don't mind that. But it was when all those people are kind of, you know, hanging on you or you're questioning yourself saying, I think that Bitcoin's going to be fine. I believe in Ethereum, even though it's down 94%, but um, maybe I'm wrong. Like maybe, maybe yeah. it isn't going to work out and that's when it's really, really hard. But when it goes full circle, obviously there's no better feeling than those people reaching out to you saying, hey, you know, I'm a millionaire now and thanks for blah, blah, blah. You know, very few people kept making content every day for that two-year crypto winter. Yeah. What was that like? Because I know your wife was like, what are you doing, Alex, during that period? Like you've said that in previous interviews. Um, yeah. Yes. That, that would be a big fact. So you've basically got the people that are relying on you. I don't know what this is like running a business. People relying on you, there's a weight to that that never ends. It mm. just it just doesn't go away. But you also sort of relish in it in a way. I, I find that I do personally. But then you've also got your wife who's saying, you know, like what's what's going on because, you know, you, you go through life and you see other couples doing things that ideally you'd like to be doing. You know, I know that my wife and I have had that in the last two years and probably the last six months. Everything has started to click for us finally. Yeah. You know, you spent those two, it's those first two to three years where it's just a real slog. Um, yes. What was that like? Well, it's, it's a funny story. So she didn't really even want me to quit. 
because it was going from, you know, pharmacy manager, good steady wage, we're about to get married, start a family, to, hey, I'm quitting to make YouTube videos about that crypto thing. Um, and so I kind of quit without really getting permission, I guess you'd say. And then it was her, what was it, 30th birthday, something like that, when it kind of came out. And so all the guys, you know, all the lads, so to speak, they're all over the moon that YouTube's going well and like, Bitcoin's going up and they're making some money. And then all the girls start, found out, oh, I didn't know Alex had quit his job and Gemma's, you know, oh, I thought you were only doing part-time or whatever. And so she was all upset. But um, like, you know, it all months later, it's all booming and it all sort of was was worth it. And you've got to have that belief. You've got to just take risks and jump off the deep end sometimes if you really do believe in something that much. Mm. Um, but no, that obviously it's darkest before the dawn. That was when the best opportunities and investments were made. Looking back, a lot of people had the attitude that you can't value cryptocurrencies or they're all so highly correlated. The worst is no different from the best. Um, <laughs> and I'd like to think we've completely proven that wrong these days. And there's so much fundamental analysis out there. And I probably lent on becoming more of an advocate for Ethereum because there's a lot of Bitcoin commentators, but there's, mm. there wasn't a lot of hardcore Ethereum commentators and believers. Yeah. And I truly thought that it was going to become a blue chip like Bitcoin. Um, everyone was saying there's these Ethereum killers that are better and blah, blah, blah. But I mean, yeah, that's probably why you know I get on Real Vision and have the chance to speak to a lot of these big names now because I put my name and reputation on the line as um, the Ethereum guy, this is going to be big. DeFi is going to be big. You know, we mm. said gaming is going to be next. NFT is going to be next. And that's all played out now. So, yeah. That's how I got into the space, actually. I couldn't work out how to value this thing. And then I found Crypto Assets, the Innovative Investor's Guide to Bitcoin and Beyond. Chris Bozinski, is that it? E- Beniski. Yeah, Chris Beniski, and there's some notes from Jack Tata as well. Um, that was like that blew my mind. And then that's when I went and wrote out like a sort of thesis for a value investing approach to crypto assets. Yeah. Um, but it's it's fascinating to look back in that time and think like, yeah, this is that's sort of a no brainer now. And it shows the, um, not the corporatization of the space, but how much more profe- finance professionals have gotten into the space, if that makes Absolutely. sense. Absolutely. You know, no one wants to be first and then no one wants to be last. As soon as Ray Dalio's of the world <laughs> and all these start talking about it and it's legitimized, literally two weeks, you know, people that were making fun of you and now ring you up asking you to teach them about it and stuff. It's just so funny how people are How it comes sheep. around. Like even smart people are sheep, really. Yeah. Yeah. In... Hindsight now, where was the moment where you you realized that the growth rate could give you uh, a significant lifestyle or a life that you wanted where you had a business for a start, but also you could do the thing that you loved, which is reporting on what was happening in this space? What moment was that amongst the winter or sort of that uptick period where you realized, actually, I am right? Well, during the bubble was when we sort of thought we could make a business out of it because the numbers were flooding in the door. Um, we had a thousand people in our paid group, and we had five thousand on the wait list. And we actually shut the doors and said, "We don't want this to get too much bigger. It's about quality rather than uh, quantity here for us." Uh, and so, in hindsight, that was probably one of the decisions that helped us out uh, in crypto winter. 
because if we had to just let 5,000 people in, it would have got crazy and it would have got a mess in that crypto winter period and all that. And that showed people that we were probably serious about the space and it wasn't just a maybe a cash grab like maybe other groups or whatnot. Um, I think DeFi was probably one of the first things to bloom after that crypto winter. Mm. Some of those projects had been going really well and gaining traction and uh, they were the first ones that you could use. Um, synthetics is the one that comes to mind, you know, an Aussie project. You could go and trade synthetic uh, currencies, Apple shares, commodities, and you could trade those 24-7 permissionlessly. Uh, there's unlimited liquidity. There's no slippage. And things like that are, you know, world first. They're, they're not things that you can even do in the traditional world on an app or anything like that. And so when people start to see, oh, hold on, this isn't just all, you know, shit coins that are going to zero and, and hype, there's these real world things that are useful. Um, you can start to see, well, hey, if you can do that, then imagine what you can do um, once you've got this, that, and the other. And that's what's happening now. All this absolute Cambrian explosion is derivatives, options, new products, bonds, interest rates, fixed, like all the stuff that's just the base level infrastructure for a whole new financial mm. world is now pretty much there, pretty much ready. And so that's what's really exciting. When people got that first glimpse of, oh, wow, this is what's happening, this is real, all of a sudden everyone wants to buy in. <laughs> look at look at what's happened just a couple of weeks ago. There's funds that are raising billions of dollars now to invest in this space. Yeah, yeah, there's so much money entering this space now. I mentioned before about how you're often looked at as the commentator in this space from people who are prominent in this new media realm. I guess I'm curious, what insight do you think that you offer people? Like what makes you different, do you think? Uh, there's a lot of tribalism. So first of all, you know, the Bitcoin maximalists, <laughs> they tend to have the biggest following and they put out so much misinformation. And so for me, I guess I've tried to be unbiased and neutral. So I'll talk about Bitcoin in a positive light as much as they will, but I'm not going to go out there and say that everything else is just, you know, vaporware like they do. To me, that's saying that these 10,000 devs or 100,000 devs that are working on 10,000 projects that are being used now by everyone from Visa to Ernst & Young to the big banks, the central banks are all building on Ethereum. Like, it's just nonsense to say that there's nothing there. Like, this stuff doesn't work. It's vaporware, blah, blah, blah. Just, it just does my head in. So it's very hard to find unbiased, neutral commentary. Uh, and the other thing I'd probably say that I've realized just this year really is these people, a lot of them had their own projects and they were very smart and they went out and sort of, you know, put that to work. Whereas I, my knowledge was behind a lot of those people a couple of years ago, but I haven't had necessarily my own project that I'm doing. Mm. My business has literally been reporting the news and covering all the latest research and innovation in the space. And so when you do that 100 hours a week for four years, you're on the bleeding edge more than anyone else has even had time to be. And that's kind of what I've found now that some people that I respected big time and looked up to for their knowledge are now sort of, you know, coming to me to ask, well, what do you think about this? Should we do it that way? Because they know that I've had the time to read all these newsletters that they don't because they're too busy or whatever. So, mm. yeah, that's been really, really cool to happen. And there's no better, you know, what they say when it's not work, when you enjoy your job. <laughs> well, it's even better again when to 
kind of get recognized as someone that's trusted in the space when there's something that you literally just love so much and love talking about and reading about. What are your golden principles then when you look at, so there's obviously a period of research where you consume, I get a sense that you're sort of like me where you consume as much info about a topic or a thing as possible. And then you look to condense it for an audience essentially. And I'm just curious in that little machine in your brain where it goes from research to insight, what are the sort of couple of principles that are always in the back of your head before you tell people about something? Uh, I always think about like if I'm these days we're like conscious of the fact that we don't speak about very, very small cap projects because it's to the point now where we're so big that we'll actually move the market. So first of all, we probably avoid talking about things that are single digit, like we don't 1 million market cap or anything like that. Um, But then it's more about, you know, is this a genuine project? It's not a scam. It's a real team. Um, is this something that I can see people using in the real world? You know, would I let my parents invest in this? Would I let friends and family invest in this? Definitely okay. before I invest in it because I know no matter how much I say do my own research or whatever, people just will some degree run out and buy and speculate when you mention things. So, yeah, you've got to be really cautious about all that. It's probably made me less willing to speak about some projects i'll hold back a little bit more these days because um it's good to grow but it's probably been the first year where we've grown so big that it's been a bit frustrating mm. um there's always people that just want to disagree with you or the bitcoin maxis are there for every ethereum post then you post about something else and the other tribes come out <laughs> people are there just to tell you about whatever you got wrong no matter how much you know you've been right 90 percent of the time sort of thing in a space where it's really hard to predict even 50 60 percent of the time um, what's happening so uh, for that reason i've always liked to be a little bit small and under the radar and a little bit niche um, because you tend to attract a better follower, you know, a more mature follower. You, you don't do the clickbait titles, you don't get the clickbait audience, that kind of thing. So, yeah, that's the way I've always thought about thought about doing business. And um, yeah, every day, I really don't think too far ahead, to be honest, mate. Like, is that much going on every day to catch up with? It's one day at a time. Yeah. What you were saying earlier about would your would friends or family or people like having that internal guilt around talking about projects that could be you know considered in any way scammy is sort of there in the back of your head but also i get a sense that because you are you were a pharmacist to be a pharmacist you have to be a conscientious person because you have to like order within you know a framework of like medicine you you know the change in a dosage is a big deal right so you have to have often a personality that really lends to that so yeah. I would I would say that that provides you with a skill set that conscientiousness of, of finding order in things and being very and therefore making you potentially risk averse contrary to what people may think so that actually means that you're less likely to talk about a hyperbolic project let's say yeah probably I mean also just being in the space I probably made a lot of the mistakes that people uh, made for the first time in 2017 and 18 you know i'd made those in 13 14 15 investing in whatever you know succumbing to fear or succumbing to hype um the crypto cycle is just so fast it's probably that four-year cycle is probably a 20 or 30 year cycle in the stock market right where mm-hmm. an investor would go through 
an expansion, a massive crash, maybe once in their investing career, you know, that bloodbath capitulation, the blow off top. In crypto, you go through that every three or four years. And so once you go through two or three of those, you're like, you know, the grandfather on Wall Street. It is unbelievable experience uh, to get that under your belt, to go through two of those and then be in the third one and just be looking at everything going on around you and saying, like, I, I know this like the back of my hand and being able to give people that just yeah. confidence and support and it's going to be okay. Like, it's darkest before the dawn. You know, we were copying shit for telling people to buy when it was parabolic um, and then we're copying shit for telling people that, you know, that we're bullish down here near the bottom when everyone's telling you you're wrong and it's going to zero. So, yeah, I guess you get that confidence with experience like any industry. Yeah, it's sort of like a case of you've seen this movie before. Um, which would be very, very handy naturally. So Nuggets news today, over 16 staff, I think, working, um, operationally led by Ben Simpson. It's essentially a media content business underpinned by the educational subscription service. Last year, we've had lockdowns, the impact of COVID, the business is growing significantly. How separate are the two brands from each other or are they just interchangeable in your mind? Uh, as in like Alex and what I do individually? Or? Alex Alex Saunders, the brand, and Nuggets News, the brand. Um, we haven't really branded Alex Saunders too much really. Like it's just, um, I guess, like the personality on Twitter and the host of YouTube and now starting to do some other stuff with, you know, Real Vision and, and that. Nuggets News, we've always had a lot of thought and detail going into the way we've gone about everything, um, the way we've hired staff. The, like you know our, our ethics and what, the way we're going to conduct our research and so now there's probably a couple of juniors a couple of senior researchers you know a guy in, in, in the US so that we've got 24/7 coverage of what's going on and producing content uh, and the new brand that we've been building is collective shift so that's basically the platform where mm-hmm. all our well free research is and all our premium research and community and that's something that I was, you know, taking a step back from recently now because there are other people that can create content and I've taught them about, you know, well, these are the websites that I look at for this data and then I post about this. So if those guys can post those things that I would have been posting, then I can still do the stuff that's, you know, unique that only I do write-ups. But, um, yeah, it's all a well-oiled machine these days, a lot of software and automation for the sign-up process, hmm. uh, 20-odd staff in the Melbourne office, which I still haven't been to because of COVID. So I'm the only one that is in Tassie. But yeah, after four years of doing some pretty long hours and some, some, some tough times, this year's definitely been the one, as you said, where it weighs on you and you feel that, I guess, emotionally and through stress and other stuff. And so, yeah, it's probably time to take a step back. And I, I really love like working on projects and ideas and saying, hey, oh, I'd love to do this this way or that way. So I, I love advising projects. I love building things. Uh, I might do more of that if I've got more, uh, more free time. But mm. I don't think you have to be there every day, um, particularly during these cycles. You know, you can still help people and hold their hand by doing, you know, saying an important message if there's something to say, but you don't necessarily have to be there every day updating people yeah do you th- if we were to sit down and have a coffee three years from now and you were quite happy with the state of your life what what would have happened what would your life look like uh i think the crypto cycle is probably about to have like another big boom in the next year or two like one 
bubble, I guess you'd say, one more big bubble. And then after that, I think it'll be pretty steady growth, like a pretty mature market of like, or similar to tech stocks. Mm. So hopefully we've picked a lot of winners and helped people understand the technology, but also do well through their investments, if that's their aim as well. Got people out somewhere near the top if things get way too bubbly again and help people buy low and whatever. Um, but if we could do that, make people's lives better, then definitely take a step back. Um, I, I've always thought I love the Joe Rogan sort of model because I find so many topics interesting. You know, you, you cover a fair range of stuff and I still am super interested in, in health, uh, all sorts of topics that I'd love to cover in longer form uh, podcast format with the best people in their fields, if you can get them as guests, like maybe that's what I see myself uh, doing when the day-to-day commentary is oh, saturated or not needed as much in a couple of years. So, yeah. Mm. So you want to get more into the content side of things, it sounds like. Um, I want to interview people that I think are super interesting, that I think the audience would find interesting that mainstream media doesn't cover. Like that's that's kind of how you describe Joe Rogan, I think. Yeah. I'd agree with that. You. Yes, you. Are you intrigued by this episode? If so, go to our footer on the website, N-E-U-R-A-L-L-E.com, neural.com. We're going to give you an insight each week. It's going to be on business, marketing, or a topic that we covered in the episode at all. We'd love your support, and it would help us in developing the intellect around this series. But without going on too much longer, let's get back into this episode. All right, let's talk crypto. It's It's been, like we said many times, the last couple of years have been very interesting. I, I, found it, I find it interesting now having a producer to see how he perceived the sort of research process. And, yeah. um, you know, he, he was saying, oh, I've got all these pleb tier questions. I'm sorry, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, that's fine. We'll cover that in the, the preamble. And th- this is sort of the way I, I see it is that my parents, um, they understand, they know about crypto. That's because it's in the mainstream media, but they still don't fully understand it. At least they still don't understand my involvement in the space. Yeah. Um, so I thought it'd be good to revisit the principles, so to speak. And I'd say as it stands today in 2020, 2021, we've probably yep. got two dominant blockchains being Bitcoin and Ethereum. Bitcoin sort of dominates that store of value application, whereas Ethereum dominates that digital app application. Now, obviously, there are notable challenges to that. Some are shitter than others. There's <laughs> things like Doge, Bitcoin Cash, but then you've also got Stellar Lumens as other blockchains, but they're not anywhere near in terms of volume of trading of those two. Yes. Then amongst the Ethereum ecosystem, we've got massive sub-ecosystems, which I think in the long-term shows that Ethereum will probably be the larger ecosystem of the two. You've got non-fungible tokens, which has been really good for digital scarcity. You've obviously got DeFi, which is for, I'd say, your lending credit and secondary finance applications. Then you have other elements like the Binance coin ecosystem, which you could say is for like trading applications. Then you've got other little areas like stable coins, which are sort of removed from that Ethereum ecosystem, but is still intertwined pretty well. So USDT, USDC, and others, and it's really just for an exchange of value more than anything. As you see it today, how would you define the state of the crypto 
ecosystem. So the next thing for the crypto space is really to to scale and get their front ends and all that better because a lot of it is super technical, made by developers. They're not really thinking about the end user yet because they're still building out the tech. Uh, and to be honest, if we had really good front ends, the tech's probably not ready for that many users you know, to be on the app store and that sort of thing. So we have to scale. So these things um, are going through uh, the throughput currently, let's call it dial-up internet, and we've got to get it to broadband and then to fiber. Uh, and once the technology is that good and that quick, then, yeah, let's fine-tune the front ends and the user experience of what these uh, apps can do. But one by one, disrupting certain industries, and it's no surprise that the finance industry, I think, things that have had such a big moat around them and have been, banks have been so profitable. Um, any Anything that touches Wall Street in that financial world that's just been flooded with money for decades now, it's no surprise that that's the first thing that's been disrupted because cutting out that middleman, that's what blockchains do, cut out the middleman, yeah. remove the need for trust and censorship. And, and that's where all the money is, basically. So that results in such a better... Um, saving and experience for the end user. And so, yeah, it's no surprise that that's the thing that's being disrupted first. Uh, but then you've got other things like we saw NFTs, a bit of a bubble. But if you think about artists or musicians, again, there's a middleman that takes 90% or you've got to do things on their terms. Um, you know, you've got to bend the knee, uh, whatnot. So all those industries one by one are just being disrupted where the content creator or the person that is creating the value can go directly to the consumer that wants to consume that value. Uh, cutting out of the middlemen and gatekeepers that have just had it so good. You know, Often you'll find that they're the people that have lobbied government and, and created those moats or laws that just give them the monopoly or oligopoly. So, yeah, I, I could just go on and on about the things that are happening in gaming or in you know, music, whatever it is that are going to be disrupted. And I guess it's the corporate business model, isn't it? Where the CEO and the board, the shareholders make the money and sometimes the workers at the bottom are doing the most hours and working the hardest and making the least money. They can't keep up with inflation. All, everything is just turned on its head in this new economy. It's just so much fairer for those that are doing the work. Yeah, That was one of the things that Jacob raised with me is that there's still we're still lacking some serious merchant options for the space. I mean, you can make an argument that there are merchant options there, like BitPay and whatnot. Um, Just for accepting crypto as payment? Yeah, but I know for a fact that that is, it's a bit of a misnomer as an application. I think I'm more interested in other applications that would have greater impact. I think the merchant thing has been solved a long time ago. It's just about awareness of it more than anything. I, I'm, I was curious from your perspective at the moment, what applications do you think are really missing in this markets marketplace? So just on like the merchants, it, it, this is a good example of what, what works and what needs to be disrupted and what doesn't. So in Australia, at most Western countries, we've got things like PayPass where you tap your card and it's it's free. There's no fees on that, basically. So there's very little need to argue that crypto is better. Um, now, for a merchant, maybe you can argue that there's a 2 or 3% fee under the hood. And so for them, if they accept crypto, then they remove that fee and there's no risks of chargebacks. So there's some benefits there. But if you go to another country that doesn't have that banking infrastructure at all, you know, go to Africa, anyone can download 
this crypto app and start using stable coins or accepting Bitcoin or Ethereum, whatever it is. Um, so in different places, if they don't have a payment system or a way to store value, a bank account, then maybe that is a little bit of a different story. So it's horses for courses. Some places they don't have, let's say, a mobile phone network. So there's blockchain solutions that are looking to do things like that, decentralize mobile networks and phone credits. Um, what, what, have, what else have we got? The big disruptors like PowerLedger, the Australian company, they've struggled to get traction maybe in places like Australia. They've probably had more test beds and whatever in India and these other places because another great example, if everyone had solar panels on their roof, you can decentralize an energy grid. So you don't have a power mm. station and everyone hooks cables up to it within 100 Ks and goes to that central point, you're distributing, dispersing, decentralizing the energy grid. So everyone um, has power from their neighbors and whatnot. So anything like that where you can say, geez, would it be better for the end user, guys that are creating video games, guys that are creating movies, Yeah, you know, they can now fund a good idea through crowdsourcing. They can now distribute it in that decentralized model and everyone can pay a dollar to watch their movie rather than have to go through a big agency and everything. You know, YouTube's been taking down videos. Twitter's been taking down accounts. Facebook's been banning news sites they don't like. And so decentralized social media is going to be a big one where we have power over our own, our own data, our own content that we create, but we also get to have power over what gets censored and what doesn't. I think the one that interests me the most, and I'm still struggling to see anything really there is an application around the real estate game because universally in Western countries, real estate is unaffordable. Like that, that is a key trend. Now, obviously underpinning that is the impacts of things like inflation and money printing affecting asset prices themselves. But there is also a key class of like middlemen there. So I guess I'm just curious if, have you seen anything of interest in that space? Uh, I mean, there's fractionalizing of real estate, but there's also that happening in the non-crypto space. I don't think it, crypto can change the affordability issue, which is the main mm. issue. What I have seen is people being able to use the world of Ethereum and DeFi to borrow uh, and get a loan at a cheaper rate than a bank will offer. So we've mm. had people that could borrow at 1%. They've borrowed that money gone to the bank and paid off their mortgage, which was 4 or 5%. Wow, and now they've okay. got to pay back the, the, the DeFi loan at 1%. So that's happening. Which platform anecdotally have you heard people speaking about in particular that they're using for lending when it comes to DeFi? So you've got, again, centralized or decentralized. So centralized ones that are run by companies are BlockFi or Celsius. Yeah. The, in the DeFi world, you've got the most trusted ones at the moment being Aave or Compound. But honestly, there's probably a dozen these days. Yeah, yeah there's quite a lot. Um, Aave is one that regularly gets raised with me, particularly for uh, the, the sort of corporate space as sort of like an investment opportunity it it's like i've had this question actually in the last week like four or five times now i've been really surprised by how many people are clued into it so yeah for me ave is one that continually comes back but blockfi is sort of the the well-known retail one i notice um but yeah it's it's super fascinating when you go onto the 
the Ave side. I've been like on it every single day this week, and you can see the the floating dollars in circulation and also the floating rates. It's super fascinating. Super, yeah, super I mean, fascinating. people can become their own bank or the lender of the bank. So you know, you can get eight percent pretty comfortably in crypto just on stable coins, like you would have yeah. Aussie dollars in your bank and getting what one percent, point one percent. So obviously you can't do that at at scale with hundreds of millions of dollars if you're a corporate, but for the average person that's getting 1% on their bank account, you can get 8 to 10% pretty comfortably with almost no risk in crypto land. Yeah. I had this conversation actually with my father-in-law recently um, because he was like, oh, you know, the banks, they're just, they're killing us, you know? And I was just going through some of the rates. I'm just looking at it again now. Yeah. You can get rates that are like triple quadruple what you get with a bank i think he was saying that at most you could bet get maybe one percent on the size of cash they have in the bank if you're lucky but like usdc and die as an example are paying at least two or three percent each minimum and rates are really low at the moment in the DeFi space yeah I know you've been big on DeFi, but to me, having been in this, the finance space for years, DeFi is the most exciting area for me. But I guess that sort of raises questions around regulation. Now, you and I were on um, Ticker News or Ticker Crypto the other week. We're talking about regulation in this space. I get a sense you fully get to flesh out what you want to say about it, as is the format. You know, It's a 10, 15-minute chat. Where do you see the state of regulation? What would you want regulated and what would you not want? regulated uh i i think like a lot of places like australia have good securities laws or if something is a security but the problem is we still don't really know if tokens are securities or not a lot of lawyers still aren't even confident to sign off on that sort of stuff (laughs) or there's not a utility token kind of classification so if you're not a security well what are you are you property are you currency you know that's still unclear in a lot of places so um, I guess just clarification and most countries are still trying to put a square peg through a round hole and you do need new legislation written up and they're still trying to, you know, everything from tax things to regulate things this old way where it just doesn't make sense. And this is kind of what I was saying when I was in the room in these conversations, you know, two or three years ago now saying that when all this gets bigger and bigger, it's going to be so complex with microtransactions, you know, interchangeability, loans. You know, was that a sale? Is that lending against your asset? This uh, this interest is being streamed by the second. All this stuff that you just need to write new legislation for. It doesn't make sense to try and say, oh well, that might fit into that. That's similar to that uh, because this space is going to continue to just throw things at. Um, you know, regulators and governments that just don't exist before. So um, one step at a time. For me, it's I don't want the transactions and the commerce regulated. What I would like regulated is the protection for individuals. I still think countries have a duty to their citizens, particularly around my concern is around fraud and scams because like I remember getting into this space. I'll always remember this story, right? It was sort of 2017, 18. So 2018, I started with Coinjar. And I remember like it's a big cohort, obviously, of Indian and Pakistani Uber drivers. And I was saying, like, I was just having a chat to my Uber driver. I'm like, oh yeah, I've sort of gotten into the crypto space. And there was a predominant group 
that had bought into OneCoin, which is a well-known scam, yeah, right? Yeah. And and it was devastating because these guys are telling me, oh, yeah, I know crypto. Um, which one do you have? I'm like, oh, Bitcoin, Ethereum. They're like, oh, I, I got into OneCoin. I'm like, oh, okay. How much money did you put, in, put into this thing? Mm. And like some of them have put $10,000, $20,000, which is a lot. Like it's their life savings. Yeah. And... And I just had to tell him, like, I'm sorry, but that money's gone. I'm sorry to say. Um, and that's what really gets me. I worry about people who are who lack education in the space who get pulled into scams by an authority that they trust, whether it's a family member, someone in the media, whatever it may be. So that's that's where I look at it. I feel like there should still be those protections through things like FOSS. Um, and ASIC, and I think the entities that are here in jurisdictions like Australia should be regulated to show that they are protecting their customers in the best possible way, and they should get the right to license themselves based on that because mm-hmm. of the amount of work that goes into it. Yeah, yeah. It's just, it is hard because even regulators don't understand the technology intimately, and sometimes you do really have to understand it to explain why it's a scam because there's such a fine line between mm. DeFi uh, and, and what is it a scam. Um, so that does make it hard and I feel for them. And I do reach out and let them know when there are scams that are getting bigger that need to get shut down and, and whatnot. Um, I've made videos on how people can spot scams, but at the end of the day, people, it is so, I mean, you've already come across this. It is hardwired into people to get defensive when they've put their money into something and people yeah. will defend you know, scammers that are sitting in a basement on the other side of the world that I've never met, they'll defend it to the death about why you're wrong and why it's not a scam, this, that, and the other. But, you know, it's always a scam. It always blows up. Um, and that's one of the reasons why I kind of even stopped warning people maybe one-on-one or putting in effort and engaging in these conversations online because you never get through to these people and you can't save no. everyone. And if you do get burnt once, hopefully you learn from that uh, like anything you know, you've, as a kid, you've got to make a mistake or get hurt and you learn not to do it again. And I think that's where the space was probably already self-regulating and maturing a little bit. So that's what I don't want to see is that they do these overarching regulations and use these excuses. Like we're seeing at the moment, it's it's really, really, you know, sad and pathetic. Some of the stuff the US is throwing up about Bitcoin waste energy, Bitcoin does this, that or the other things that are just categorically untrue to try and regulate it more. So that's the stuff that I don't want to see. Yeah, I, I completely agree with that. Um, but yeah, I, I'd like to see more protection for consumers, you know, where you see like obligations on, if you go to Coles and you have to buy the, those um, vouchers, right? And they have the big signs that say, you're, the ATO will never ask you for payments in iTunes vouchers and stuff like that. So they're, they're trying to disrupt the process for these scammers at every stage that impacts the consumer and sort of shock at least a small percentage of them into the idea that actually there's something wrong here. That's the big thing for me. If there can mm. be something around that, I think that's that's what I'd like to see. Mm. Um, all right, let's jump across the economy. It's been a hard 19 months, I would say. Today, as we speak, it's July 2021. New South Wales has extended their lockdown. Pretty sure Perth is coming out of theirs. SA is no longer in lockdown. I'm not sure what's going on with the NT. Uh, Queensland's still in a partial lockdown of sorts. 
very minimal cases. The UK, on the other hand, is 64% vaccinated and declared that they're opening up literally yesterday. Um, yeah. I've seen projections on the impact to the economy long-term saying that our population will, as it stands, people are having less children because of COVID and the numbers of the population will go down. There's massive ramifications for that to the economy in terms of growth. Where do you see the state of the economy and what would you think has to happen for either the economy to, to trend upwards or downwards over the next 18 months? Um, so initially, like I was really cautious when we started to hear the numbers and what was going on with COVID, you know, hospitals being flooded, emergency departments, you know, and I copped a bit of flack for saying this looks pretty bad and I think, you know, stock markets are going to fall and this is more serious than people think. Uh, but now I'm kind of going to the other end of the spectrum because, you know, being data-driven, I think we can say that it's probably not, you know, hospitals aren't still overwhelmed. And, yeah, I know mm. a lot of people are at home and isolating and we've got a few vaccines. I don't know how effective they are or not, but I think what we can kind of say now is that, it's, it wasn't as devastating as we thought and there's ways to open the economy and be sensible and, and not go into these full shutdowns if everyone's doing the right thing each time because it's pretty clear now that other things like, you know, mental health or just the impact of these businesses that are all going under, all this is going to be probably a lot worse than um, what I was pushing for initially, which is just a hard lockdown for a month and just don't let it get out of control. But we kept doing these half measures and, and dragging on. And then people probably didn't take it as seriously as we need them to. And now they're not taking it that seriously. And we're seeing these constant rebounds. So I do think it's almost being used as an excuse now to keep people in lockdown, which is a, a bit of a worry. Mm. Like governments aren't going to admit they're wrong or health professionals or, or whatnot. Uh, so some countries will open up and, and, and show that it can be done, I think. And then once that happens for a while, then they can't deny that that can happen and then we'll follow suit. But just the conversations they're, ha they're having and what they're focusing on, it's just, it's a real worry. Um, you know, the housing market in Australia is a prime example. They're just so focused on who can we give a lower first home owners grant to and how can we do these building bonuses? Like there's just no thought about maybe we should make our economy more focused on science and innovation and technology in the future like they're still debating whether or not we should change you know climate policies or go towards renewables it's just like I, we've had it so good we're such a lucky country it would kind we'd be so much worse off if we weren't a lucky country but i think it's probably still going to come back to haunt us to some degree down the line that we just rode on the coattails of of what we had we thought we were geniuses where we we really were just getting lucky with our resources. Yeah. No, I agree with that. Um, yeah, I think I think we're sort of in a state of malaise, if that makes sense. We're just sort of in this weird segue period where it's a game of chicken. And I found it really interesting the last couple of weeks um, as all the state premiers are kicking up a fuss and pissed off about the vaccine rollout um, that they've basically put the military in charge of the rollout itself, but we're still going to have, it's still not going to be till September, October till people like you and I can really be considered for a vaccine of any sort. I don't know. I, I guess I was curious if you were, if you were the PM 
for the next 120 days, what policy or what changes would you look to enact? I'd want to get more, like just in general, if I was in charge, I'd be changing the entire model and so that we've got uh, experts in their field in charge of those fields in the, in the country and making decisions and probably from each side you know, of, of the coin. So you want people arguing and debating healthily that are experts on, in their field. And so maybe things like if everyone's wearing a mask, if everyone's washing their hands, young, healthy people have got a low chance, let's say, so they can go out, we can open the economy. Um, we maybe need to have more protection around those that are immunocompromised and elderly and, and whatnot. And let's really look at that that data um, and let's have good response teams to to fix it if things are going pear-shaped. Maybe don't put people in these hotels in the middle of the cities and when they're not designed for that and it's not working. Uh, but I think we need to be having different discussions in terms of the overall economy. Yeah, just completely refocusing on things that we are going to need in the future that are going to value adding industries rather than just digging stuff out of the ground and hoping that China will use it or building more houses and hoping that banks will give bigger loans to people. Changing regulation, I think. Like this is why I'm so passionate about Bitcoin and crypto because I just think the whole you get back down to the root of it. The RBA have printed what two hundred billion dollars, and I think it's something like eighty five percent of it has gone to the banks for housing. Now, now you tell me what that extra hundred and sixty billion dollars that's pushed house prices up and made it unaffordable for even more people. It's made the wealthy that own those houses hundred sixty billion richer. A lot of it's gone to the stock market. Blah blah blah. Like, how on earth is that creating economic prosperity, um, equality, employment, all these things that the RBA are mandated to do? Like, it's just so disconnected. And we're going to look back and laugh uh, when things like crypto allow us to go directly to that person to give out a stimulus check if that's actually what you want. Giving banks a couple of hundred million dollars to lend to people for bigger mortgages, like, that's the economic theory on how you stimulate the economy. Like it's yeah. just a load of rubbish. That's the biggest one for me is I see really crypto as sort of like capitalism squared, like capitalism on steroids. There's no capital controls. There's no centralized authority dictating where money goes. The economy just works it out. And to me, that is fascinating. And, you know, you mentioned before about digging shit out of the ground and sending it to China. This year, more than anything, it's like everyone's woken up to sort of the tentacles of the CCP and, we are, I've seen last year a massive fracture between ideas around how you run countries or run spheres of influence. You've obviously got the way that China runs their sphere of influence, which is very authoritarian and centralized. And you've got people in the US and the West pushing for the value of things like democracy. And I can see, like, I think the decision by China to no longer mine Bitcoin or ban mining of crypto in anticipation of their own coin is probably like the most, probably will be one of the worst geopolitical mistakes in hindsight that they've ever made. I think it will, I think it's all of this is putting us into a new Cold War and eventually it will end in China losing because we know that centralization typically loses. And as things like decentralization grow in the West, um, we're going to see. I think we're going to really see things like crypto grow quite significantly. So I guess I'm curious from your perspective, how do you see China and their impact on the, the global global finance 
ecosystem, particularly with this recent change in the ban on crypto companies? Yeah, it makes no sense why it's so profitable and they had that hash rate. It's going to become like some sort of strategic reserve, like a gold or you know US treasury. So why would you not want that in your own backyard and let it all go to the US? Something just doesn't add up to me there. Yeah. Um, but what doesn't add up in particular? Like what doesn't make sense? I, I just like they can force their own digital yuan on people, but that's just so like it's just such a different use case. Yeah. The payment system and their own currency compared to what Bitcoin is. And like, why wouldn't you want to be in control of something that's so big and growing so fast and has roots everywhere? Like it just, why would China not want to be in control of, of that to some degree? Yeah. Uh, or at least profit from it because they've got, you know, their hand in the pocket of all these exchanges and miners over there. Um, we made that documentary two or three years ago now called uh, Australia coming financial crisis and we outlined all this stuff like the reliance on china the percentages and how if anything was to ever change you know australia's really screwed and that's kind of what's happening now isn't it when they're picking off those industries one by one so like we were just speaking about we've got it so good and now we're trying to renegotiate different treaties and uh, you know trade you want to be value adding as we spoke about before you you want to be doing things other people cannot do you don't want to be overcharging for things that are going to go digital and anyone can do online it's going to become decentralized and you know that's what australia is probably too good at what is it 60 70 percent service economy people aren't living in cities anymore what happens if all those cafes and all those little things that are probably not essential infrastructure in cities you know what do those people now do as well because i just yeah all those things australia is really really exposed to all right, let's look at some uh, rapid-fire questions to finish things off. Uh, what's your morning and evening routine look like? Well, a bit of family time with a little little guy, but it's just it's always going, put it that way. Like there's just always something happening. So it's fun, but it's just there's no real line there, mate. It just blurs <laughs> the day into the evening, uh, you know, shower and bath time and dinner time, but then back to just reading about stuff or watching stuff because it's, it's just interesting. So yeah. yeah, always at it, I guess. What are you watching at night typically? Just podcasts or interviews on things that I find fascinating. Yeah. Um, Non-crypto stuff if it's my downtime. Um, but even, yeah, crypto and finance interviews with the latest minds and the best thinkers and asking them about how they're disrupting certain industries. Like it, it is just so interesting. Every, every day is so new. What have you watched in the last couple of months that's, blown your mind in some way i mean a little bit off center here but like i've always been interested in you know like ufo phenomenon aliens and all that kind of thing mainly because being science-minded someone might say oh well why would you believe that if you're science-minded but once you watch all the space documentaries and you crunch the numbers then you know it just makes sense that we're not alone in the universe um and these days they've even i think the technology we're getting to the point where we're even starting to understand how it would work, you know, space travel or different dimensions. And it's no longer just airy fairy stuff that's made up. Um, but we've started to see more and more of like UFO disclosure from the U S government, which again, 10 years ago, if you say that to your friends, you know, you're just crazy. And now the U S government are telling you that, well, here's this footage. Yeah, this is real. We don't know what this is. Um, it just feels like, Maybe it's a distraction because now's a good time to tell people, 
you know, so everyone's so focused on COVID. Well, let's try and give people something else to focus on. I, I don't know why they're doing it, but it just feels really weird to me that all of a sudden they're talking about UFOs and aliens and admitting they're all real and stuff. Um, what do you think about all that? Um, I don't know. I think like to me, it's, it's very obvious just from a numbers point of view that we're not alone in the universe. The question is how close of a, you know, galaxy, like how close by are they and Mm. have they visited? Um, what's the intelligence level like? How far ahead of us are they? Um, I can't, no, no one's been able to give me a definitive point. Like I've watched all the Joe Rogan shit and I've watched, Many, many people go through that report on the UFOs and to me it's still inconclusive as to what it is. But I think generally, for sure, aliens exist without a doubt. I just think generally we're not ready. Like if you were from somewhere far away and you come and you look at, at planet Earth and you look down and they're nuking each other, they believe in a book of with words on pages depending on what side of an imaginary border they're born on and they'll fight each other to the death depending on that what side of that border they're born on. <laughs> you know, I'm describing religion here. But um, yeah. do you know what I mean? It's just so crazy when you're actually an, an open-minded person, conscientious, you think about how big space in the universe is that we're still fighting and bombing each other over these little things and beliefs and everyone thinks their God's real and blah, blah, blah. Um, <laughs> we're just not ready for that. Like it would just blow too many people's whole belief set apart to be told that they're wrong. Well, that's not your God or there's other people in the universe and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Well, it's impossible. It's possible though, that if we ever had that moment where it was revealed that aliens were real and they came to us, I still think that if that happened, that could be a unifying moment. It could give people a lot of perspective. You'd hope so, but I just... (laughs) You don't think so? The next day, there's going to be conspiracy theories about the opposite of why it's not true and whatever. (laughs) Just, yeah. Um, Last question for you. Uh, Best purchase under $200? I really don't have that many. I'm trying to think of what I've even bought that's under $200 like in the past 10 years. Oh, I'll tell you what. A good cheap pair of uh, Ugg boots goes a long way. You oh, know, yeah. Down at, K- down at Kmart or wherever, you can get a good pair of Ugg boots for under $200. Yeah. They yeah. do well in a Tassie winter. Yeah, I think uh, anything like that in a winter. I got sort of, uh, not a replica brand, but like a, I got some moccasins recently. They The problem is they only last me a year or so when they're like 40, 50 bucks because like all the, you know, the tufts of hair get sort of stripped back. I'm yeah, wearing yeah, it so yeah. often. Um, but yeah, when you're working from home in the midst of winter, there's no better purchase. That's for exactly. sure. Alex, thanks so much for coming on the show. Where can people find you on the interwebs? Um, yeah, Alex Saunders on Twitter or Nuggets News on YouTube and the website's nuggetsnews.com.au. All our free crypto education and research is over at collectiveshift.com.au. Um, now, Collective Shift, you can obviously find that on nuggetsnews.com.au as well. Yeah. Uh, we'll make sure we link all of that. But um, Alex, thanks for coming on the show. No worries, mate. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for checking out this episode. If you do like it, please subscribe. And of course, like if you're watching the YouTube video as well. 
Uh, we'd really appreciate that. You can also find our Clips channel in the description. For audio, if you're not already listening, you can search Uncommon on Pocket Cast, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts quite easily. For video, if you're not watching, you can search Uncommon on YouTube. And for behind-the-scenes takes and clips uh, on social media, then definitely check out at Uncommon underscore show on Instagram. But otherwise, look, thanks so much for tuning in. And until next time, thanks for listening.